You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Oh dear. But yeah, we are already recording by the way, I pressed record before you jumped in. Okay. So I caught you off guard. Alright, no worries. <laughs> I've been getting up all your stuff here. I've been looking at your website, having a bit of a poke around and stuff. It's very fancy. Who is, who's your host for your website? It's a woman called Kelly, and she's at Looking Glass Creative in Australia. Oh. She's through Twitter. She was followed to the same podcast as I did, and she happened to be a podcast website designer. Does that make you her employer then? No, I don't think it works like that. <laughs> For tax purposes, we'll say no. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> it's cool, though. So it says here you grew up just outside Sheffield. Mm-hmm. My ends. Well, not Sheffield, but Yorkshire. Havisage. You know Havisage? The Peak District, like Hope Valley. Havisage. Yeah. Doesn't everyone go there walking from the cities? It's like Bamford, Bradwell, Hope. Oh, I don't know. No, I bet see, that's why I was near Sheffield, because nobody knows who it was going. Yeah, near Sheffield. Could be 10, 20 miles away, but near Sheffield. Like everyone from England is near London to people yeah. that are from abroad. That's what it's kind of like. But where did you, didn't you say you grew up in Derbyshire though, in your email? Yeah, so Hathersage is in Derbyshire. So it's 10 miles right. south of Sheffield. So it's just a really confusing one. So the address was <laughs> near Sheffield, but it was actually in Derbyshire. Right, a completely different postcode then. And when you grew up, you said your dad, let me, I'm just reading your email here. I'm, I'm very unprofessionally unprofessional. <laughs> What were you saying about your dad? You're a collector of like true crime clippings and stuff. You had some Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, so he that whether that's where I got it from, I would have been this way anyway. So I've got loads. He passed away 20 years ago, but he left his books. So I've got loads of crime books. He was a big collector before internet of newspaper clippings. You know, yeah. he old me. So I've got a whole, and it helped me when I wrote my first book, which was based around the time of the Yorkshire Ripper. Literally like 1979, 1980, every interest in newspaper clipping, which is either true crime or political scandals, anything like that. Some quite saucy stuff too, we like that as well, I think. <laughs> so was your first book also fiction then, or have you ever written any non-fiction? No, I've written non-fiction articles, but um, just fiction books. So I've got a whole book of the entire Yorkshire Ripper court case so every newspaper every clipping that was every article that was written during the time of his court case I've got and a lot of the while he was still at large a lot of the newspaper reports of the victims wow I did a case recently guy from Huddersfield that got murdered called John Hare he apparently was George Oldfield's driver you know George Oldfield who led the investigation yeah yeah Apparently this guy was his driver back in the late 70s and he drove him up to Sunderland and stuff when they thought it was a Wearside Jack. But then sadly he went on to be murdered, which is just awful. Oh, God. Yeah, it's weird, the connections you see. There was one case as well where I think it, what was it now? that It might have been Russell Bishop. I don't know if you've listened to that one. called Was it The Babes in the Woods? Could have been. Yeah. But one of the kids, it might have been a different case, but someone who reenacted the case for say crime watch and played the role of one of the murdered girls herself went on to be murdered someone suggested that case to me mm, it's weird isn't it you don't know if it's just like conspiracy theory like the horror films where 
things have happened to people if it just it's just an unfortunate or yeah it's weird how true life i don't know if you've found this when you're writing especially with fiction do you ever write things and think no one's going to believe that because the truth just seems far more bizarre yeah i think if uh, sometimes you read things yeah i've seen true crime like documentaries i can't think of one of handles one i watched recently and you think nobody would believe that if you wrote it down they'd, they'd get thrown out how much inspiration from true crime do you take into your crime fiction writing? Is it a big influence or not? Yes, because the first book that hasn't that isn't published yet, that's the first one I wrote, that was all about growing up in 1980. That was inspired by my time growing up just outside Sheffield while the Yorkshire Ripper was at large. Um, it's not about him. It wasn't about him, but it was just about how that was just a constant conversation for women and families and the clinic which is the one that was published in October I had it wasn't well I guess it was in that I've read Greg Olson's Starvation Heights which is about a serial killer it was the early 1800s she had a fasting clinic she was a Dr Linda Hazard except she wasn't really a doctor and basically starved men and women they paid a fortune to travel there and A bit of it is unclear about whether she really thought what she was doing was helping them to cure them. But, you know, she had she got financial gain out of it. And she certainly was a very bad woman because they were dying in front of her and she wasn't letting them go. So I read that book. So I thought, okay, well, that happens then. So that's kind of it. This isn't beyond believable that somebody would have a beauty and diet clinic and bad things happen in it because it's already happened. When did you first realized that becoming a writer was something you wanted to do not until I started um Colcott's the first book which was when I was 45 did I start that maybe a bit before then so about five years ago um I'd written articles and bits and pieces for magazines and newspapers but I'd only do it if like I'd seen something in the news that sparked something I didn't set out to write so much a day and then, yeah, so I, was, I, I don't even know what it was that I just thought I, I'm going to write and I'm going to take it seriously rather than just in two years' time go, oh, I should have started then. I'll just start now and I'll, do, I'll get a mentor. So I've got a writing mentor who's, who helped me get started. And I just went for it and it was just co- complete focus that I was going to get it published. So I listened to what, what it needed to be. And, you know, there are rules, there are formulas that if you don't follow them, then publishers aren't aren't probably going to buy the book. Like what? What sort of formulas? Just like there's all there's all different kind of ways of formatting a book, you know, like the three-act structure or the five acts, so the way the rise in tension. There's a, a great book called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr, and that goes into really why we all like any story, whether it's round a campfire, whether it's a book, whether it's a film. You know, the things we need to hear from a story, you know, like a, a protagonist, an antagonist, that we want comeuppance of some kind, that we need those things in a story. Yeah, there are things you need to do with the book. You can't have like loads of characters that do nothing just because you like writing about them and they're quite funny. That won't work. So you have to cut all that out. What do you work on first? Do you work on the characters and get their backgrounds and mannerisms in, or do you? have a vague idea of the plot what's the starting point usually the setting 
So the first book was obviously I grew up there. I grew up on a council, a row of council houses just outside Sheffield. So that I had that and I wanted to write about that. The clinic, I worked at one of the last um, Victorian asylums in England in the 90s, which was in St. Albans. So that was, I mean, I knew when I worked there, I was like, this is going to, one day I'll write about this. This building was called Hill End. It doesn't exist anymore, obviously. It closed in 95, I think. I just went there as a naive care assistant, um, and it was quite a shock. So is this for the criminally, I hate to use the word insane, but the criminally mentally unwell, I guess, is maybe a nicer way of saying it? it, uh, Like a psychiatric hospital, it would be. That's an even better way of saying it. Yeah, Yeah, but I guess (laughs) at some point, (laughs) at some point, yeah, the words always change and things are constantly like on a back foot about what's okay and what's not. Originally, in Victorian times, it would have probably had criminals there. It would have been a dumping ground for pregnant women, women who had sex out of marriage. Basically, anything that was an embarrassment to families would have gone to places like these these asylums. And then as time goes on, they change the names and they become hospitals. So it would be it could be anything. I'm trying to think. I don't there will be people that have committed crimes, but they're not there. It's not like a Broadmoor type place. They are okay. hospitals for So it's not high security. Like, um, like Broadmoor would be, or? I worked on an acute ward, so they would come in with all kinds of things, and I guess they could have had more, some that were more secure and observed. But normally, people that were a risk to themselves or others. So a lot of sectioned patients came in. So every everything from schizophrenia, depression, postnatal depression. Trying to think. Did you get most of the inpatients or were the outpatients as well? All inpatients. So the acute okay. wards, I think they were only supposed to be there a short time, but they were there. I worked there for about four months in the end. That's all I could take because by the time I left, I thought, I honestly don't know if I should be sat in an armchair with them or coming in and going and working here because I just, it was so blurred. It became so blurred. It was such a dark place. So was that because of the effect it had on you mentally or you didn't feel competent? Just meant they're just they were just the building and it's the buildings themselves. It is not it's not the patients at all. And I was very clear not that I was never going to write about that side of things. It was the treatment. So I would so I came from Derbyshire. I was working in a nursing home, so I had quite a nice, you know, lovely working with old people that I loved. And then they did this big recruitment thing, and I wanted to move down south. So I just went to the hospital, got a job really quickly. Should have been suspicious then. But anyway, started work, just walked in with, I don't, I honestly don't think I had any training at all. And I was sitting with suicidal patients, patients that would have, you know, I'd go and do something on my own with a patient, walk around the grounds with them. And then the next minute an alarm would go off and like seven massive white clad orderlies had run in and like inject them in the backside and they'd be sedated because they were just about to kick off. I'd be like, oh, I've just spent like three hours with them in a room on my own waiting for a teacher to come along. (laughs) Like, God. And then things like electric shock therapy, which is quite controversial. It is still used. Some people believe in it. Some think it's damaged people irreparably. You know, they didn't tell me what that was. They just said, oh, can you um, chaperone Margaret or whoever and take them down for the treatment? So I'd be like, okay, come on, Margaret be wheeled down there and then they're sedating them putting the electrodes on the head 
and shocking them. And I've like no idea what's going on. <laughs> I'm just in this dark, like basement type place, thinking, what the hell? By the nineties, then I'm a, I'm just having a quick look online, but stuff like lobotomies and that they were still performed at that point, were they? No, not to my knowledge. No, I think they, I think that was fifty. Could have been. Yeah, might be yeah. just in another department. Yeah, fifties and sixties. <laughs> so was was there a specific trigger then? So after four months, was there one event that you thought, Do you know what, hell no, I'm done, or was it just an accumulation? An accumulation. It was just draining, and we the main room there it was like a huge hall and it was smoke filled because I mean I smoked then so I don't know if I smoked while I was in the hall I don't think I could um but everyone was encouraged to smoke so that you'd just be sat in this big smoky if you think about like a village or a town like dance hall like an old hall people just sat around in chairs all day occasionally chasing patients around the garden who were running off and just and some of the I have to some of the male staff were were I'd, let's just say I'd rather sit with the patients than some of the male staff. After four months, I was kind of like, I'm starting to feel a bit down now. I'm starting to feel like I could check in, so maybe it's time to go. I believe that these buildings. I mean, it was an amazing building, but you would walk, you know, and it was, it didn't help that it was crumbling because by then they knew it was closing, so they weren't putting money into it. So you'd be walking down long corridors, echoing, you could hear screams and cries, like echoing down at night. And I just think like they've had, what was it, 100 years it had been going? 100 years of all those things happening, more than that, longer than that. I just think the walls hold it. Those type of buildings hold everything that's happened within it. Oh, I believe it. I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, but I think energy, such negative energy as well. You know, it's the sort of place where you wouldn't want to walk down on a... A dark night on your own. Did they tear it down when it got disused? Is it? Yeah, I think the beautiful, like, main reception, like, Victorian building, I think that still exists. But they, the rest of it, all the wards were taken down. I think it's luxury housing, the usual housing right. estate. Yeah. I remember walking down the corridor once and thinking, I don't know what they're going to do with this building, but I would never, never set foot in it again. I'd never live in it. It looks like here, I'm just having a look at this history. Just make sure it's the right place. Hill End. Yeah, in, on the outskirts of St. Albans. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So it says it operated from 1899 till 1995. Yeah. So it can't have lasted much longer after, after you left. It was clearly heading towards the end of... Yeah, I think it lasted about another seven months. It was right at the end. So staff, you know, they were short. That's why they had the mass recruitment, because obviously people were leaving because they knew it was closing. Have you seen the film, The Young Poisoner's Handbook? I've not. About Graham Young, the St. Albans. Graham Young, yeah, I've done a yeah. case on him. Yeah, I've not seen the film. Is it good? It's a brilliant film. It's oh, I can't remember his name. It's got Charlotte Coleman in it and oh, Ruth. What's Is it name? from the 90s? I've... Yeah, because it, it was filmed there. They filmed it at Hell End while I was there. Oh, they filmed it? Right. Okay. Um, I can't think what she's called now. She's the mightly actress, Ruth. She's one of my favourite actresses. But anyway... It's quite hard to get hold of, but that's that's a great film. And that was that all of the hospital psychiatric parts were filmed at Hill End. Really? It just lent itself to that kind of feeling of dark and creepy. So I think it was for the best that patients got to move out. You know, it's not good for all of them because some of them were completely institutionalised. They'd been there for decades. It just, I thought, somewhere brighter and just a bit nicer might have been a better place to heal. 
Right. Why did you go after that? Oh, I think I went on something worse. I did social care in Hemel Hempstead. <laughs> ah. I think I, lasted, I didn't last that long at that. And then I went to a travel company, so that was good. I liked it there. Did you last a bit longer there? Yeah. Well, I'm not very domesticated, so they were putting me basically in with families to support them with domestic chores. So I think I just made life worse for them. <laughs> so right. This is not good. I've got yeah. Was it the the young poisoner's handbook? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I was looking for poison. I'm trying to see who it stars. Hugh O'Connor. Yeah. Ruth Sheen. Ruth Sheen. That's it. I love her. Roger Lloyd Pack was in it as well. Yeah. Cool. Weird story that one. Really weird story. One of my ex's ex, as her uncle, was one of the victims that he survived but lost his hair. Really? Mm. Jesus. So you got a lot of links to some real big cases then? I have, because also his... <laughs> a lot of weird links. His, My ex-mother-in-law's great-aunt was the first victim of Jack the Ripper. She was called Valerie Ann Nichols, and Polly Ann Nichols was the first. Jeez. From Bermondsey. And another one is, my friend was the assistant prosecuting barrister for the Harold Shipman case. And another one is, it's quite a few, I think we're probably all a few just degrees removed, (laughs) aren't we? What's the saying? There's a a term for it. You're only 10 connections away from anyone. I think it's 10. And it's six degrees of separation. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, 10's a bit of a... Overestimate six sounds even better. Yeah, and then my sister, <laughs> and then I've got another one. My sister, who's um, not not here anymore, she passed away. Um, but when she was about, oh, I don't know, she was a teenager. My my eldest sister lived in Gloucestershire, and she was a nightmare hitchhiker. She just did it everywhere, despite being told not to. She got in a van one day, and the guy started talking. His his conversation turned very dark and asking her about her sex life and things. So she felt very uncomfortable. And luckily, my oldest sister's boyfriend was doing odd jobs. He was a builder in the village in Fairford. And she waved at him. He never saw her, but she waved. So then the driver thought he'd seen her. So he did let her out the car. So that was that. You know, she probably carried on hitchhiking after that. And then when Fred West was on the news, she recognised him as being the man that had her in the van. Whether it was or not, she just said she remembers the smile and the teeth. I mean, he's not exactly a forgetful face, is he? Let's be fair. No, it's like a builder's van, like a white van. Oh, Jesus Christ. Gives me the creeps, man. Yeah. It's so frightening. It is, because you just want to think it's in another world, it's in another place. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. It's the random... All murders are horrible. Most of them are by people that the victims knew, so partners, friends, family, let's say. The random ones are the ones that really scare me. Like I did a research one recently, and it's just a, a young girl, 18, walking around a park, just killing time, waiting for her friends to finish their exams. And this guy just went out one day with a knife and a basically a sexual assault kit. Mm. Waited for a woman on her own, spoke to a few dog walkers, wasn't feeling it, saw her and just killed her. No rhyme or reason, no motive. Couldn't explain why he did it, why he chose her, why he woke up feeling that way. 18-year-old gone. No. One thing I could like thinking, because I've seen a couple of um, documentaries, one 
all going on around the same time, the Yorkshire Ripper, I think Dennis Nielsen was around the same time and a couple in America around late 70s, 80s. So it's kind of prolific. There were a lot of serial killers then. And then I read once that there's always a serial killer at any one time, no matter what's happening, there's one. I thought, well, nowadays with CCTV, with DNA, with everything that makes it really hard, you know, car number plate recognition, if you're a serial killer, if you're psychologically that way inclined or a killer, does that stop you? Does it get pent up or are they finding different ways? So would there ever be serial killers like we have had in the past? Because it's much harder now to be one. Is that an urge that they can, or maybe they just get caught after one crime now and you never will know what they were going to do? There's certainly a lot who do get caught after they make that step up from, say, sexual assault, robbery, Mm. GBH, to murder. They tend to get caught after that first one now. But I bet there's just people who either target people who are so off grid they wouldn't be considered missing they wouldn't get reported missing they might live in rural areas where cctv isn't as prevalent i think the urge is probably too overwhelming to think oh they've got cctv cameras on the bus now i'm not gonna bother do you know what i mean i think the urge is probably too it's like disassociation i'm going on like i know what a serial killer thinks here it's like disassociation i would have imagined so that nothing matters in that moment they black out kind of thing yeah i guess they just get caught quicker i suppose it's just it just i was like oh my god this was happening then it's like there was like a mass of them in the 70s you know in the south in the north of england in america on the west coast i was like what was like how did it go from that to not really hearing about that too much now what's the difference i think it is advances in technology especially since the dna database came in in 95 that's a big changer but it baffles me how shipman went on for so long and his weren't exactly covert murders you know he was doing these in people's houses and people were talking and saying oh yeah so-and-so has passed away and we've all got the same doctor it's very such a strange case that one that he just got away with it. So he picked hold of hold of it, but maybe it's a bit like the police thing. It's just a hero worship, you know. Doctors couldn't possibly do wrong. Then the good thing is they brought in. Didn't they bring in a few different rules or legal acts on the back of his case to do with GPs? I don't know what they are specifically, but I think they brought in a couple of changes to the law. I mean, you don't get many doctors come around your house anymore, do you? No, oh, you're lucky if you can get an appointment at a surgery for a lot of people. You are. But yeah, let's talk about the clinic a bit more. So I like the fact, I've not read it yet, admittedly, but from what I've been reading about it, it's going down rather, rather well. Mm. Reading the reviews and stuff and everything you're sharing on Twitter. Has it been, or how have you felt the the response has been to the book is a better way of asking. Yeah, I'm really, yeah, really pleased because you never know. You write it and you get your agent if you're lucky and then you get a publishing deal and then you kind of go, oh, hell actually people are going to read it now uh, <laughs> the truth will out you've got to have some faith that you know it's done you've got your you've got your agent and publisher that it's a good book um but yeah the the response has been great and a lot of bloggers have been in contact you know that the themes of the book are there's a lot of weight loss in it and beauty and that kind of thing and there's been a great response to that and writing about that how 
deep into or how much notice do you take of stuff like reviews? Is that something you bother looking at or do you just sort of think uh, people will think what they want? I, I think I went on NetGalley, which is more of a, a read a blogger, a writer thing. I went on there once, saw a review I didn't like. I was like, no, this is not healthy. Don't do this. <laughs> now, now, if I go on Amazon, because obviously it's nice to have the four and five star reviews to use, and luckily I've got more of those, I kind of do it and I go onto Amazon, but I put my hand up, I block out anything that's below that, and then yeah, click yeah. on it. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's it's subject obviously it's subjective and people can think but I don't think it does you any good you know you get enough good nice reviews that you think okay I'm doing it right you're you're my reader and some people just put the oddest thing you know you'll get a one star because formatting's not worked out on the kindle or I've known other writers get one star because Amazon sent it in a damaged box yeah. I don't really realise how that affects the writer. It's daft, isn't it? Item never arrived, one star. But how was the item? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just so stupid. I had a guy on the show, John Barlow came on, and he wrote a book based in Leeds. So he talks about York Road, the A64. Now, there was one typo in the whole book, and instead of saying A64, it said A46. Right. Someone felt the need to reach out to him and just let him know that the F46 is wherever, somewhere else. And he was he was like, Look, guys, I know. <laughs> it's a little tight. I know where the York Road is, you know what I mean? It's, it's just so ridiculous. Do you think on the other side of that though? So looking at negative ones can because we always focus more on negative ones, don't we? Yeah, we take always. those. You can have twenty five good ones, one bad one, and you'll you'll be down for the day. Do you think there's a risk of if people do like to look at reviews of just looking at the positive ones or do you think because that could give you a false sense of achievement but then again that's like you've said that's your reader so you know that's what your audience likes yeah i don't read them and go oh well i'm a mate you know i am amazing aren't i <laughs> <laughs> kind of i literally will look at them and cut and paste and go look these people like it you might like it this is really good i don't obviously it's nice is it more for marketing yeah, and you know, and you know, I appreciate them, especially the ones where they've said, "I've been through this. I have had weight issues or body image issues, and this really spoke to me." That is really that was really important to me, and that's that's happened quite a lot. But I think, like you say, you don't take in the good ones are like a, a high, but the bad ones you could sit with for quite a while, and you know, some people aren't going to like what you do. You know, there are elements of horror in it. It is quite dark. You know, and you, you get people who go, oh, I've read 10 pages, did not finish. You think, well, oh. <laughs> okay. Well, that, but then, you know, I've read books where I've probably started to not finish, but I wouldn't review them. I wouldn't well, review. This is it. It's a weird mindset reviewing, isn't it? Because when you like something, you're probably less inclined to review it than if you really dislike something. But I think you're better reviewing stuff like services. If yeah. you've had a good experience with a business, if it's something creative like a book, an album, podcast, whatever it may be, if you're not a fan, it speaks more if you just don't listen to it. Yeah. Because that affects figures, viewing figures, listening figures, purchase figures, whatever it may be. That speaks louder than a shitty little review that says you don't know what you're doing. Because all that makes the person who's done it think, well, where's your effort? Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, no, 100%. It's reviews are, yeah. It's great thing to just go on and, yeah, just rip something apart. I, mean, I haven't had anything really terrible said, but 
you know, people do do that. They want, you know, you don't know why, what people's motives are. A good thing that somebody told me with reviews was go to one of your favorite books and find the reviews and look at the one, two, three stars or three stars are still good. And you'll find they've got them too. And you'll be like, what? That book? And then one of my favorite books is My Sister, the Serial Killer. And I went on her reviews and she had one star. I'm thinking, well, you're crazy because that is never in any sense a one star book, you know, in my mind. So everyone's going to get it and everyone, there's always somebody out there that will do it. So I think an easier system could be something as simple as, did you enjoy this book? Yes or no? And you could have a spot if you want to put a caveat in as to why. Because the star rating, it feels so personal. If you get a two star or something, it's like, so it's not dog shit, but it's, it needs a lot of improvement to meet your standards. It's like two star. I listened to this on uh, another podcast. I was listening to, they were talking about this and saying they should take the star bit off and just be able to write a review. You probably get a lot less people who are, were negative doing it because then they'd have to bother and just have, and then people can read through the reviews rather than a star thing that's right at the top. You know, somebody one stars something, it brings the whole thing down and just take the stars away and just have people write what they feel about it. Because it's too easy as well to leave a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts and stuff, and just not even write a comment with it. So you could tweet someone and they would not like what you've tweeted. So they will spite you by giving you a one star. And it's like... Same on Amazon for books. They can do that. They don't have to write anything. It's just... uh, You should have to write something. You should have to write a minimum 500-word essay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What your opinion is on this film and why. That's what you should have to do. So what's the plans then as far as future works? Is this going to be part of a series or is this a standalone, the clinic? This is a standalone. Um, I got a three book deal with Joffy Books. So I've just handed in, well, not just the end of last year, I handed in the second book, uh, which is called The Curse of Hollowcroft, which is more, it's not witchcraft supernatural, but it's more kind of grounded witchcraft you know um people that you know real people that really believe in it and um, not hogwarts it's more <laughs> <laughs> no flying on brooms you know it is like the practice of witchcraft because they're all blue practice and i met with somebody that did a uh, practicing witch so that's a that is another one based in the north and then i've just started a third one based at a holiday resort in the north scarborough well, it's not. I'm not setting it in Scarborough, but in my head, it's Scarborough. Cause... Blue Dolphin, basically. Blue Dolphin in Scarborough. Yeah. Or Haven. <laughs> B&B. I've gone B&B. I did, um, B&B, yeah. I did want to. Uh, it was inspired by a visit to, well, I didn't actually go into the, I don't fucking, I'm allowed to say their name, on the coast. And I looked at it and I was like, I said to my friend, I said, what's that? So I was a holiday camp. I was like, no, it's not. It cannot be. It looks like a prison camp. I said, no, it is. So I went home and some of the thing, the reviews on it are just insane. People have done all those videos where they go in. Like, it's just, I think they were going to turn it into an immigration centre, but they've cancelled that now. So I'm not surprised. Oh, God. It's really. There is a guy on YouTube called Walk With Me, Tim, and he mm, goes to these. That was him. Yeah, he goes to like the worst rated hotel in Scarborough, and it's like the the Grand Hotel or something, and it's just falling apart. Really funny videos. I've seen that. I've seen that one. It sounds like you're a fan of, what's the word for it? One location 
stories, yeah. I guess, set in a certain location. Because you mentioned that's the first thing you look for. Yeah. I like stuff like that. Like, films like Shutter Island or The Shining, where yeah. a character itself is actually the location, which I think can bring out some really interesting concepts. Yeah, settings, definitely. I, I'll always do that. I'll just go, oh, what could happen there? That looks creepy. Oh, I'll go there. You know, it's that kind of weird mindset. I'm just drawn to that. And then so it'll be, well, who would be there? And then why would they be there? And what could happen while they were there? So when you're driving around, you're just like, ooh. Yeah. And it's a big building. Yeah. Why don't you do, I don't know how familiar you are with the M62, but why don't you do one? <laughs> uh, what, on, the farm? Are you going to say the farm in the middle of the road? Yeah, the house <laughs> in the middle of the road, the farm. Yeah, that'd be spooky as a setting. I, that's, that's, that's like, um, I was think that's like a road traffic distraction that because every i've seen it so many times that every time i still i'm still driving by trying to look in the window <laughs> spotting one. this is really dangerous well the stories on that house are so varied some people say that it was built and he didn't want to move his house some people say it was agreed i've heard both of the last i heard was that he would have moved it but it, as it happened it wouldn't have worked they couldn't have done the road where he was so they ended up just building around him yeah, it's just the most bizarre place. Proper weird, isn't it? <laughs> I'd sell like advertising hoard in there because everyone's looking out for it. You'd make a fortune, surely. Yeah, you could probably charge a bomb, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good shout. But yeah, so let's get everyone to buy a copy of The Clinic. I'll put a link in the episode. It came out October last year. Yes, October 27th. Is it available on everything, so Audible and all that kind of good stuff? Um, the, the rights Audible, they're just recording it now um, as an audio book, so anytime soon. Um, but Amazon is the best place to get it. You can get it at Waterstones, but it takes longer to get it, so Amazon. Why aren't you doing the narration for your book? Well, they didn't ask me. Didn't they? Oh, God. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't know if I would have done it justice. They have got, I did, they, gave, they asked me for a wish list, and she was one of the ones on it. She narrated a book called Ghosted by Jen Ashworth and I, she's amazing so I was like oh if I could have her and then they wrote back and goes well we've got Jen Ashworth no not Jen Ashworth sorry um, oh I can't remember her name is it Helen I won't even say it because I can't remember it anyway I got a wish list narrator and she's amazing so she can do a much better job than I could okay fair enough <laughs> <laughs> you didn't ask me otherwise I would have done it <laughs> that's always the way but yeah, it's been lovely having you on. Lovely speaking to you. And you. And uh, as and when your next one comes out, we'll have to have another chat and see what's going on. Yeah, you need to start cranking out these podcasts. I've caught up now. I literally... Oh, have... sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've got to that point. I was talking to about this the other day where I just think everyone's a potential criminal because I've listened to so much true crime. And I think the world is a dark place. Yeah, it is. But you, you're at the unenviable position now of a lot of my listeners where i love it i'm binging it i'm binging it and then yeah. they'll go i've caught up now can you kind of uh, <laughs> yeah start releasing more than one a week and i'm like no mate no you're lucky you get one sometimes people don't realize what work goes into it no like anything like a newsletter a podcast uh, articles books there's such a lot of behind the scenes stuff so sally ann martin we will end it there and thanks again for your time for everyone else i will see you later thank Bye-bye. you Bye-bye.